directions. New Zealanders talk about their beliefs and values and what gives meaning to their lives, where they've come from, where they're going and why. Sir Graham Latimer has been criticised by both Māori radical and Pākehā during his 18-year term as President of the New Zealand Māori Council. But he continues with his dream of a truly bicultural society. Sir Graham's leadership role is in sharp contrast to his experience of poverty as a child and his birth on the side of the road in the gum fields of Northland. We were staying in the gum fields at a Hohora and about a fortnight before Mum was due to have me, uh, they put her on a buggy to send her down to Kaira so that she'd be handed to the hospital. Uh, but when she got on the buggy, I suppose the bumping around and that uh, put her into labour. So there was a, a when when she got to Waihara, she she started to labour, and so she had me on the side of the road and the old house that uh, they took me up to and I suppose bathed me and that is still, well, it's been renovated but it's still on a, on a corner. And I look there quite often, look there with a little bit of emotion every time I go past there now. Are you a member of a large family? No, not a great, not a very big family. I have uh, four, uh, three brothers and two sisters, there's six in our family. My youngest brother just died recently. And what sort of a family was it? You, your father was a keen churchman, was he not? Well, my father was very, very strong Anglican, and uh, Mum was uh, really a Catholic when we first got married, and when they first got married, I'm sorry. Uh, that didn't help too much because them days well, there was no love lost between the Catholics and the and the Anglicans, and above all, Parker marrying a Maori. Uh, you sort of uh, you were ostracised from both sides. Mum was ostracised from both sides for a long time. Your, your mother was Pākehā? Pākehā, yeah, that's right, she Pākehā, and she found it difficult living in the settlement because uh, she couldn't understand a word of Māori. Uh, to Dad's credit, Dad never allowed anybody to speak Māori in our home in front of my mother. Uh, he said, if you can't uh, attempt to talk English, then you shouldn't be uh, uh, coming to my home and uh, upsetting my wife. But on the other hand, um, because my mother had married into... The Maori family, the European side, didn't uh, really didn't take too kindly to that, and her own sisters uh, later in life had vehicles, and uh, they passed her on the road when she walked. She used to walk four and a half miles to do her shopping, and her own sisters and husband would uh, pass her on the road rather than stop and pick her up. So, I know the agony of racism on both sides uh, and, and I'm, I try to make a point of it that nobody in my life, nobody during my life will get hurt through, through, through racism as far as I'm concerned. Would you say your, what was it like in your family home? Um, how important was religion for instance? Well important, religion was number one. Well religion, religion was number one. You. We had prayers, somebody read the Bible, Dad read a passage from the Bible every night uh, and every evening you'd, you'd, you'd have to all go into the sitting room while we had had a service. So thinking back sometimes those services seemed to go on forever but I suppose they were only a quarter of an hour, 20, uh, 20 minutes but they seemed to go on forever. Uh, you didn't have a meal of, of any description without having, having uh, grace over that meal. Uh, and Dad never, if, if people came to the home and 
that and wanted to be wanted to see Dad. Uh, his, he'd welcome them and then have a short prayer and talk to them and then always end with a short prayer before they went away. So religion was to the forefront. My um, grandmother, that's my father's mother, she was uh, one of the um, Sunday school teachers. She used to ride for miles teaching Sunday school. And, of course, her father was the was one of the intakes of the second ordained ministers in our area. So religion, Anglican religion, is is very, very strong in, in my tribal area in Ngāti Sometimes I think we're the most bigoted Anglicans there are in the whole wide world. Uh, we're so blind about our religion that that I think... I, and I criticise my own home people because you travel extensively. Even if you go to England and you go to any other country uh, where the Anglican religion is as strong as what it is, it still is difficult for anybody to do anything outside the Anglican religion in our place. And if you get married outside, it's not likely that uh, you know, if you're married to a Catholic or to, to a Ratna or to anybody outside, in some of, the, some of the cases you can't even be buried in the cemetery at home. And uh, I'm arguing against that now because intermarriage goes on so rapidly that, that you can't hold those old uh, uh, ideals and that uh, any longer. The idea was that nobody married outside of the Anglican Church into the Ngātikahu people. But uh, they're, still, they're still pretty stubborn. You'll be aware that there's some movements uh, within Maoridom to recover Maori spirituality, return to the pre-missionary times as far as beliefs are concerned. What do you think of that? Well, I, I have a difficulty coming to grips with that. I, and I can understand what they're talking about and, and that. But I have a difficulty because, you see, when I pray and when I go to church, I don't see people in terms of colour. I see a spiritual person guiding me. And... Uh, I, I've never thought of that person being either white, brown, or any other colour. Uh, so when I go down, when I kneel to pray, I pray to God. Uh, when I say my prayers, I do not think of of, of God as as a, as a European only. I I think that in my own sense, and I probably will be laughed about this. Uh, I believe God is a member of every family, and there should be no dividing people because once you start dividing you divide the family and that's what that has worried me I've been a little bit offside with the Maori people because when I go to church I go to church so God can be with my family and God is always with your family whenever you need him and you don't run rushing around looking to find out what color he is you pray to God you accept what God gives you where, where God directs you and uh, and I think that, that that's my main philosophy is that God is part of my family. In fact, he's the head of my family. And I accept that. Although you're now a leader in Maoridom, I understand that uh, there was a time in your life when you were heading in another direction. In fact, in some ways, the Pākehā side of you were, was perhaps even stronger. Yes, I, I think that uh, that stemmed from the fact that uh, when my mother and father was at home, uh, we were always without. Uh, nobody knows what it is really to be poor unless you've went gone, you know, that you've traveled through the slumps in 1934. Uh, and at that stage, uh, 
My father used to travel to these hui's and then come back. And often mum would be the only person left at home and a policeman would come along with the with the summons for accounts and all that. And uh, I used to think to myself, how could dad go away and leave my mother to face all these bills that were coming in and knowing full well that she couldn't pay them? And uh, I used to think to myself, well, if that's what a... If, you know, if a hui is going to get you into that much trouble, then I would be better off concentrating on bringing my family up, making sure my wife never ever suffered the same embarrassments or humiliation that my mother suffered. Uh, I think that really, that was one of the things that was etched in my mind is the humiliation that my mother had to go through when she faced the policeman that used to bring the summonses and used to ask for money. In fact, she used to hide in the room and send the children out to tell the policeman that we weren't home. And my mother wasn't a, 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 a liar, but humiliation drove her, drove her to that. And uh, I decided uh, that I would try and make out in life. I started to milk the cows at home when my father and my two brothers went into the army and so I milked for one year and I cut a lot of wood and stacked the wood on the side of the road, sold the wood to the factory and uh, with my cream check and all that that I got, it was quite a sum of money, it was 80 pounds and uh, they uh, argued for a whole week as to how they were going to divvy my 80 pounds up and I was so shocked about this that I thought to myself, well... Who, who were they? Those are my cousins and, and, and relatives. Uh, that, weren't, that weren't on the land and never came near the land, but as soon as they knew I had the 80 pounds, they, they descended on the home and started to argue for their share of the money. So it was at that stage that I decided, well, this life's no good to me. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't work and, and earn money and then not know whether it was my money or whether it was my property. I had to be certain that everything that I got in life was mine because... Uh, I thought I had the right to share. Nobody had the right to come and tell me to share. And uh, again, I so I decided when I when I went I went away to Auckland and then into the army. And then I went away to Japan. When I come back from Japan, I stood on the station for I suppose the best part of an hour, just wondering whether to go back home to Kaidai and to go through the same agony that I'd seen my mother and father go through. And the difficulties that my family experienced were well, one thing about my father. He insisted that we had the best of education that he could afford. He'd always, he always used to say that the only uh, endowment I can leave you is the best education that I can afford to give you. And if it means going to jail, I will go to jail to educate you. And on two occasions, he did go to jail because he couldn't pay his uh, uh, bill at the at the drapery uh, place. So. Uh, education was to the forefront, so we had a reasonable education. And when I came back, although mine was the, I was the poorest educated one of the lot, I was only proficiency level. I decided to, to stay in Auckland and and set sail on this road and and uh, try to try to be as I suppose a, as good a parker as any parker could be. Uh, not not forgetting the fact that I was born of Maori of Māori heritage, so uh, I really set out on that trail and, and uh, tried to keep away from uh, 
becoming involved in Māori land, uh, Māori hui's, because they were time-consuming uh, and uh, very emotional, very, very emotional. The hui's very, very emotional. And uh, so uh, I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to get married to my wife and bring up my family, I wanted to be certain that I was going to leave them in a position where they were able to carry on to develop themselves within this, uh, the system that we lived in, remembering in the 40s and 50s, uh, Maori was still hardly recognized as ordinary citizens in this country. It wasn't until 1943 that the first census was taken, that we actually became part and parcel of the community, 1943, and that was mostly because they wanted to find out how many eligible male men there was in the, in the settlements to, to join, uh, join the army and go over and fight. So we were very much still a uh, race of people without recognition. We weren't able to uh, to go to the hotel and get a bottle of beer or take a bottle of beer out. We were still treated as overgrown uh, children. So I, I, I thought, well, that life was no good for me, and I would just head on my trail and work until I could get enough money to get a home. And, then we decided to try and get a farm and get enough money to pay a deposit on a farm. And so in 1961 we reached that goal and we went farming and uh, we've been farming ever since and I still think I'm a better farmer than I am anything else in this country. Yeah, for a time you worked on the railways too, did you? Yes, I had to work on the railways to get a start in life. And I very much appreciated my 13 going on 14 years on the railway because was able to we were able to save a little bit of money to get some furniture uh, to I suppose to begin to realize that we had to live our life uh, in in the modern system that was developing all around us that was to get yourself either into a good job or, or become independent and when I was in Auckland and when my wife had our first job uh, I went to uh, work. Well, I took her to the to the uh, hospital, stayed with her, and then went down to work. And I was an hour late. And the foreman abused the living daylights out of me and uh, told me that Maoris were all no good, and I was one of them, and and so on. And, and uh, I made up my mind then that I wasn't going to work for somebody else all the days of my life. I would finish up working for myself and one day I would tell that person just go plumb to hell <laughs> and uh, I never got the chance and I wouldn't have done it anyhow. Uh, perhaps he spurred me on to being more determined into becoming a lot independent, a lot more independent in life. So you became a dairy farmer but gradually you became involved in Maori things again didn't you? How did that happen? Well. After after we we uh, left Auckland to go to Waiatira, we became involved in a lot of sport. And, and uh, when we came back to Tahana and then to Kaiwa, we were still very much involved in sport. And uh, my father, with a number of people, came to talk to me about uh, becoming a leader in the in Maridom, especially at the home uh, home level. And uh, I said to them at that stage that they must be kidding themselves to think that I could ever do anything like that. 
but the sincerity of the request was something that uh, concerned me. Uh, my father was to repeat that that request on a number of occasions, but the first time I knew that I had hurt him and I'd hurt the others when I said to, them to, to go away that they, they were at the bottom of the barrel. And so uh, I said to him that if I could possibly do anything, that I would do that. Uh, at that time, I was very much involved with a chap in football, Kemp Nathan, who was to become, I suppose, a tutor to me in my things. He was, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, secretary to the late Friday Pikey, who was the who was acting minister of Maori affairs for a while. And so uh, with my father and them on one side and with Mr. Nathan, Kemp Nathan on the other side, always at you, you were sort of funneled into a direction that you didn't want to go in, but you had to go in because you were caught with a current. And uh, many times I looked to, the, looked to the side to see how I could get out of, out of it because I... I knew it was costly, very, very costly, and time-consuming, and that. And uh, but uh, as we got into the fifties, that was around fifty-three, fifty-four. Then fifty-six, they had a quite a big meeting in uh, in uh, Automatia at that stage, talking about the Bastion Point situation. And uh, they got a lot of submissions ready to take to the late Darby Pike here. Uh, so that he could, in fact, uh, make representation to the Maori Select Committee for the return of some of that land. Uh, but when they got them all ready and they'd ordered the buses to go to Wellington, they got a ring from from Darby Pike here to say, look, don't come because uh, we uh, won't be able to, to win anything because the people that are, are on the Select Committee have no understanding of of the, uh, the uh, claims of the people, uh, to leave it for another day. Uh, the people had anticipated that the Labour government would go in, and that's why they had built up their hopes. Uh, following that, in 1958, they had quite a big hui at a place called Oruofara. That's just north of Walesford. And it was during that night that they talked about uh, who would lead uh, the people for the future, who would become the main spokesman for the tribe. And uh, I went there, uh, more or less, uh, to take these old people because they had no car and I was growling that way and my thinking, well, you beggars, you're only using me to take me out to, to get me to take you to this hui. So anyhow, when I got there, I went to sleep. And so in the morning, uh, I woke up and I went to have a wash and at that time, uh, he washed outside, there was no such thing as uh, hot water service or, or water you just washed in a pan and if you wanted to shave you scraped the way out in the coal. And the old fellow come out camp, he, he said to me, he said, oh, he said, a marvellous, marvellous night last night, marvellous night. I said, oh, yes. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, well, we were selecting who's the future spokesman and the leader of the people for Ngāti Whātua in the north and possibly for the whole of New Zealand. And uh, <laughs> I, I suppose naive as well. And I said, oh, yeah, who do you people select, uh, Kim? He said, you're it, son. And uh, I suppose that was really the <laughs> the period where, where uh, 
people start to put a place for greater responsibilities on your shoulders. Uh, he said, we've decided that he said, we'll take you up north and introduce you to the northern tribes, and then at a later date you can be taken south and we'll introduce you to the southern tribes. But he said, uh, you're to become the president of the New Zealand Murray Council. And I didn't know what they were talking about. I had no idea what he was talking about. Murray Council, I didn't know, know there was such a thing as a Murray Council. And in fact, there wasn't because the Act was still being uh, 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 put through Parliament. I was to become a member of the Taitagara District Murray Council in 1964. And in 1966, I became a member of the New Zealand Murray Council. I became president of Murray Council in 1972. I've been president ever since. So, whether whether they were right or whether they were wrong, uh, I finished up in that position, and uh, they took me north. Uh, the old people accepted their their recommendation, and I sort of had an easy passage. I'm going to the top. Far, far easier than, than what it would be if you wanted to become Prime Minister of this country or anything, because <laughs> the uh, people were determined that I was going to be there. And, uh, and uh, you, you know, you've got no idea the, the force that is behind you. You can't back away. You can't step sideways. There's no, there's no way that you can, you can say, oh, hell, I'm going to duck out of this. You think about it. Of course you think about it. But I uh, finished up, and uh, so I followed the, the, as I said earlier, the philosophy of the old people that had culminated in a, a hui in Wellington, and out of it grew the Maori Social and Economic Act. I worked the social side all the way through, never losing sight of the economic side. I've, yeah, and I've been criticised because I, I sometimes push the economic side far too hard. But I never ever lost sight of the fact that you can never be a master in your home unless you really own that home, or nor can you can you uh, direct the people unless you're in the driver's seat. So you believe that Maori have to become economically de independent they in order to re retrieve that's, that's, that. That's right. That is the, that is the philosophy of the of, of our our existing system. That uh, those that uh, if you're economically independent, you can say what you want to say. You don't have to hide what you feel. I know that a lot of Maori people, because of their, their own uh, positions, are not able to speak out because they're, they're paternalised and dependent on, on government and on, on, on society for a living. We have tremendous resources, uh, totally uncommitted at the present moment. Most of the, the other resources are committed to overdrafts that would drown you. In a lot of cases, we have a lot of resources, forestry resources, land resources. We've just got uh, sea resources. And I think we can hew out a fairly strong base, but we've got to get away from... We've got to get away from the fact that we owe somebody uh, a living in life. We owe ourselves first. We can't help... You know, you cannot help anybody unless you have something to help that person with. You can't help that person with somebody else's resources. You can only really help that person with your own resources. What do you see as the greatest success of the Māori Council under your leadership? I think so the, far. So far. I think there can be no doubt that we made the Māori Social Welfare Act 
really act by the huge number of uh, submissions that we made to Parliament uh, in the 60s and in the 70s and uh, the changes that we were able to bring about the Town and Country Planning Act, they were very small, 31G. The uh, setting up of the Waitangi Tribunal was another breakthrough uh, that we were able to to get uh, onto the statute books. I think getting the trial, the, the Waitangi Treaty of Waitangi recognised in legislation and in, in, in uh, the legal system of this country is probably the greatest, uh, greatest uh, breakthrough that Maoridom has made. The courts that followed uh, are, are hugely important, but those courts could have never taken place if the groundwork hadn't been put in, put into place in the first place. And it was that difficult period of, in, in the 70s when uh, everything was going against society. Uh, remembering you had the land march, you had Tamato, you had everything. Every, every possible uh, element of, of, of dissatisfaction was developing in this country, and we were heading for a, a racial showdown. There's no doubt in my mind we were heading for that racial showdown. Where have we got to now, do you think, both for Māori and Pākehā in New Zealand? Oh, well, where we've got to is that we're starting to talk to one another. That is the, that is the greatest gain that has come out of, out of all the the battles of the 70s and 80s, is that uh, Māori and Pākehā are starting to talk a lot uh, more freely about uh, all we're arguing about airwaves and arguing about what's right and what's wrong, and that's not going to do us any damn harm. But what we were able to do is to talk to one another, and it's a funny thing about it, that the courts have brought that about, about us being able to talk to one another quite openly about what is right and what is wrong. Well, we still have guided, uh, guided thoughts, um, but <laughs> the the uh, documents of the courts are open for everybody to read. This legislation in Parliament, uh, a lot of European people are learning to talk Maori. You listen to the new news uh, uh, every morning at six o'clock, and uh, uh, the announcer says "Tenako to Kato," and then it gets along to the Maori. Uh, news and he says Mona Namahi, and all those uh, little, those, those are so small, you know. But by God, there that that means we've come a long way. We've come a long way. When we start uh, using that, and you go to a hui now, if you go to a hui, you, you know you see a European there, you don't know whether just to shake hands with them or to hongi to them, because if you shake hands with them, he hongis with you. And so the homing is one of the things that's becoming far more fashionable in this country than anything, any one other thing that uh, that is happening. It's becoming fashionable, and, it, and, and, and it's, a, uh, it's an element of sincerity from Pākehā to Māori. And we mustn't lose sight of that. There's a strong element of sincerity towards one another. And uh, I see that happening. I go to go to uh, some of the Marais, and some Parker gets up and speaks Maori and, and uh, that. And uh, so you've got this interchange that's beginning to develop. But this here, this respect, you know, I, I walk down the street and you come across Parker people and they say, Kia ora, Graham. 
and you, you have you know you're just going to say good morning and they say kia ora so you have to, to think quickly and uh, and reply in maori and so all this communication is beginning to develop small but very very important to the future of this country very very important and uh, you know in 10 15 years we're going to we're going to laugh like hell about the arguments about the airwaves because by that time the communication systems of this country will settle down and we'll be looking at new technology uh, so we shouldn't we shouldn't wipe off what's happening in the court we shouldn't uh, it's it's an education for all of us the court didn't say the treaty that you had to have airwaves under the treaty what the court said it would be fair and gentlemanly to talk about how we should share them that's what the court said we should talk about them in good human terms. They didn't say that under the Treaty of Waitangi we were entitled to X number of airwaves. What the court said, it would be proper for Murray and Parker to sit down and say, how best can we, can we share this asset that we have got amongst us? It's a newfound technology. It wasn't here when the treaty was here, nor did the Parker know it was around either. Till 1901, I think it was. So, those are the, some of, that's some of the areas I see the pluses for. Uh, if you have a look at the 1990 and the number of walkers that turned up, but forget the walkers, and the number of Parker people that associated themselves with a walker from their own tribe. You know? And uh, then you begin to get a picture of a very fast. Uh, developing uh, bicultural society faster than what we're realizing. Mm -hmm.